Good morning, everyone. You can have a seat. And at this time, the kids can be dismissed and the youth for the Balcony Club. If you want to turn your Bible to Genesis chapter 42. We'll be covering Genesis 42 to 45. We're not going to read the whole thing today. Um, but we'll talk a little bit about it and then we'll be reading portions of it. There's a story about a couple who lived, who were married for 60 years, and uh, they had a really great marriage. They loved each other deeply, and they didn't share any secrets from one another, except for one thing. This woman, the wife, had a shoebox. She had this shoebox that she kept on the top of her closet, and when they got married, she said to her husband, I just have this one shoebox, and all that I ask is that you never ask anything about this shoebox. You never look inside this shoebox. So he fulfilled her wish, and she kept that shoebox in the top of her closet for all the 60 years they were together. Well, in the course of time, the wife became sick, and uh, it became clear that she was near the end of her life. And so the husband asked his wife, as he was getting her affairs in order, would it be okay if I looked in that box now? She says, okay, sure, you can look into it. So he takes the box, brings it down, he opens it up, and there's two little crocheted dolls in this box. And then there's this big wad of cash in there, adding up to $95,000. So he, he asks her, what are these little crocheted dolls for? She says, well, my grandmother gave me this shoe box before we were married. It was like the night before we were married. And she said, if there's ever any time where you have an unresolved conflict with your husband, if you've worked it out and you still can't resolve it, here's what you should do. Just keep your mouth shut, crochet a doll, and put it in this box. So the husband was elated that after... All of these years, 60 years, there were only two times when there was unresolved issues. And he felt so much love for his wife because he felt like there was no issues in his marriage whatsoever except for these two times. And then he asks her, what, well, what about the, the $95,000? How did you get that much money? She says, well, each time I made one of these dolls, I sold them for $5 and it added up to $95,000. So a little bit more conflict than he thought. <laughs> and the truth is we all face conflict in our life, whether that's with a spouse, with a friend, with family members, we all face conflict. Maybe we're currently experiencing conflict, or if we're not currently experiencing conflict, we will eventually experience conflict. In the story we're looking at today, we're continuing the story of Joseph, and we're going to be talking about Joseph's reconciliation with his brothers, how he was brought back into a right relationship with his brothers. And I think there's some things that we can learn for how to deal with conflict in this passage. And we see first that there is a reversal that has occurred in this passage. Now, as some of you might know, my brother Michael is five years younger than me. And so when we were growing up, I used to love to play sports with him because I could beat him in any sport that we played. And so I, you know, 
would kind of just mess around. You know, sometimes I'd put my hand behind my back or just play with one hand. I remember we were playing hockey one time, and I'm just skating down the ice with one hand. It was great. I could beat him all the time. But little did I know I was creating a monster. See, he was always facing somebody that was a lot stronger and a lot better than him, so he had to try as hard as he could each time. So eventually, as time went on, it started to even out a little bit. So it was a good competition. He would win one. I would win one. And then as I grew up and he got more fully developed, the tide started to turn so that I was the one who was losing every time. He was the one having his hand behind his back trying to win. It's a reversal that occurs. We see a huge reversal in this passage. There's a reversal in the power structure. We were introduced to Joseph. He's a 17-year-old boy, probably not very strong, inexperienced. And he has these, ten bro- or these, these brothers who are much stronger than him, much more life experience than he, than he had. And they throw him in a pit and decide that they're going to kill him. And then later they decide to sell him to Ishmaelite traders instead. And then they go to Jacob, their father, and pretend like a wild animal's devoured Joseph. But here we are 22 years later, and Joseph is the second in command in Egypt. And here his brothers are standing before him to get grain because there was a famine in the land. So his brothers are coming to get grain. And we see that they're bowing before him. Now his brothers didn't recognize him. The course of time had changed him. He'd become basically an Egyptian. The 17-year-old kid that they knew was no longer there any longer. He was now the second in command in Egypt. And just like the dream that he had back when he was a kid, that his brothers would bow down to him, that dream has now been fulfilled. And the tide has turned, and there's been a great reversal where the power structure has gone from his brothers to Joseph. And now it's Joseph's turn to exercise power. And he says to his brothers, I know that you're spies. You've come out to see the the weakness, the nakedness of the land. I know that you're spies. So he accuses them of being spies. And so he throws them in prison and he says, he says, do you have any other brothers? And they say, we have one younger brother. They say, send send one of you to go back and get that younger brother to corroborate that you're telling the truth and then I'll let you all go. Then apparently Joseph changes his mind and allows all of them to go except for one, Simeon, who's taken as a ransom. Notice what, where their minds go to. They're being treated harshly by Joseph. They don't know it's Joseph. But notice the guilty consciences they had. Look at Genesis 42, verses 21 to 22. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen? So not there, now there comes a reckoning for his blood. And talk about guilty conscience. This is 22 years later, and something bad happens to them, and they say, surely this is happening because of what we did to Joseph, our brother. So all of them except for Simeon go back to their homeland They're given grain, and along the way they find that the money that they were supposed to pay for the grain is in 
their bags with them. And so they're terrified. They plead with Jacob to send back Benjamin with them. But he refuses. He says, I've lost one of my sons. I've lost Joseph. I can't bear to lose another one. Reuben said, I'll give you two of my sons. You can kill both of my sons if I don't bring Benjamin back to you. But Jacob, he's not listening. But in the course of time, they ran out of food again. The famine was severe in the land. And Jacob says, go, you need to get us some food. And Judah says to him, well, I can't go back. This, this ruler of Egypt said that he'll surely not see us unless we bring back this, our younger brother. So finally, Jacob acquiesces. Finally, Jacob says, take, take the boy with you. Judah says, I'll be a pledge of his safety. I'll give my life if I don't bring Benjamin back. So reluctantly, Jacob agrees. And so the brothers return with Benjamin. They come before Joseph, and Joseph has a meal prepared for them. And they notice that the table that they're at has them all ordered in, in, uh, in direction of age. They're all lined up according to their age. And we see that Benjamin get f- gets five times as much food as all the other brothers. And then we, they're sent back to their homeland again with more grain. But we know that Joseph's silver goblet, silver chalice, has been hidden in Benjamin's bag. So let's pick up the story in uh, chapter 44, verse 6, and read a little bit about what happens. Genesis 44, verse 6. When he, meaning the guard who was coming after them, overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, Speak, let your servant speak a word in your Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? We said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he, he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set, him, set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. 
When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down if our youngest brother, uh, if our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you shall bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as my, his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy, as a servant to my Lord. Let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with, <coughs> with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when, J when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into slavery and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in this land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for your remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry up and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children, your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. So Benjamin, as we see, is found to have the goblet. And Joseph says that he'll keep Benjamin as a slave. But Judah intercedes for Benjamin and says, take me instead. I pledged my life that I would bring the boy back. Take me instead. And then Jake, Joseph can't handle it any longer. He says, I'm your brother, Joseph. But his brothers, they're speechless. They're terrified. They cannot say anything. But then we see that they're reconciled as a family. They're brought back together as a family. And in this story of reconciliation, we two, see two elements of reconciliation. We see forgiveness and we see repentance. Those are the two elements that are necessary for reconciliation. Forgiveness and repentance. Now Joseph has lost 13 years of his life because of his brothers. 13 years in prison. You'd think that he would be ready now that he's in a position of power to exact his revenge. Maybe even putting his brothers in the same prison that he was in for 13 years. See how you like it. See how you like your life being wasted. 
See how you like being treated unjustly. See how you like being falsely accused. And yet he finds a way to forgive his brothers. He says that, Do not be angry or distressed with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. See, the reason that Joseph is able to forgive his brothers is because he's reframed his circumstances through a God-centered perspective. Now, from a human perspective, Joseph looks at the situation, my brothers have caused me so much pain. They've wasted my life. All this time, I can never get that time back. But he doesn't look at it through that perspective. He reframes it from a God-centered perspective. He says, God had a plan. God brought me here for a reason. And ultimately, ultimately, he says, God brought me here to save you, to rescue you, to preserve for you a remnant so that when the famine comes, everyone wouldn't die. God had a purpose. See, Joseph's life wasn't ruined by his brothers. Sometimes it's hard for us to forgive other people because we feel like other people have ruined our life. And if the truth is, if we're believers in Jesus, nobody can thwart God's plan for our lives. No one can ruin our lives. I mean, they might bring us some hardship. They might bring us some pain. They might bring us some struggle. But they can't thwart God's plan for our lives. And there we see this great mystery. That somehow, even through the worst possible actions of human beings, somehow God can still fulfill His purposes. I mean, the things that Joseph's brothers did, they were terrible. Selling his brother into slavery. Plotting to kill him. It was a terrible thing, but somehow through that, God was working his plan. And we, you know, we, can, we can't really wrap our minds around that. How, how does God do that? How does God take the evil actions of man and turn them around and use them for good? We can't figure that out. That's beyond our realm of comprehension. But that's what God does. Imagine Jesus himself, if he was at the end of his life and looked at it from a human perspective. Thought to himself, these people, they've taken my life. I was at the height of my ministry, the height of my career. I was healing the sick. I raised people back from the dead. I was proclaiming the good news. And now these people have come and taken my life. They've cut my life short. Now these people, they're going to pay for what they did. That's what would happen if Jesus looked at it from a human perspective. But what did Jesus do? He looked at it through God's perspective. He knew that he was sent to the earth for a purpose. He knew that he was sent to rescue people from all nations and tribes and tongues. And so on the cross, he's able to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He looked at it through a God-centered perspective. If we're going to forgive those around us, we need to look at it through a God-centered perspective. That even though they might have done evil to us, it doesn't thwart God's purposes in our lives. So that's the first element of reconciliation, forgiveness. And then there's repentance. Now Joseph has kind of set up this scenario for his brothers. 
He's in the position of authority. His brothers don't know who he is. And so he kind of can kind of mess with them a little bit. Now, we wonder, why does, why does he do this? Is he trying to punish them? Is he trying to test them? Maybe a little bit both. Maybe there were other reasons. We don't know for sure. But I think definitely there was an element of testing involved in this episode. Because he sets up some really interesting situations for his brother. Remember back in the early Joseph story, Joseph is given a special coat. He has these dreams. And it really arouses his brother's jealousy. That is... He goes about his life, his brothers become more and more jealous. Well, here in this story, Joseph kind of creates a situation that would or should have aroused their jealousy once again. Benjamin, their brother, is given five times more food than any of the other brothers. Now, it could have been because Joseph cared for his brother Benjamin so much, but it could have been also to test him. See, how are they going to respond Are they going to quarrel with one another? And then he plants this silver cup in Benjamin's uh, bag. And maybe he was trying to see, how are they going to respond? Are they going to say, well, he's got it. Just take him. He must have stolen it. It's in his bag. That's what they would have done with Joseph years ago. But we see that they have thoroughly repented of their sin. We see that They go so far as giving themselves up. Judah offers his own life for the sake of Benjamin. And we see that, remember, there's this favoritism that Jacob had towards Joseph. And his brothers, they even acknowledge that there's a favoritism towards Benjamin, but they're okay with it now. They've come to to, uh, grips with it. They said, our father loves Benjamin. He He had two sons and now one is gone. They acknowledge that basically Benjamin is the favorite. And still, they say, we got to bring him back to our father because we care about our father so much. It's a completely about face, a complete repentance that has happened for his brothers. They're not the same people that they were when they sold Jacob 22 years prior. And we see that through their repentance, through Joseph's forgiveness, reconciliation can occur. Now in our personal relationships, we might find ourselves on either side of the coin. We might find that someone has done something to us and we need to offer forgiveness to them. Or we might find that we've done something wrong to somebody else and we need to repent of what we did to them. And sometimes in the complexity of relationships that we have, we need to do both. You know, maybe we have been wronged but we responded in a wrong manner to that. And we need to both offer forgiveness and repentance. Now you might be thinking to yourself, well, I'd, I'd love to uh, be reconciled to so-and-so, but they'll never repent. They'll never change their ways. Or you might say to yourself, I'd love to be reconciled with so-and-so, but they'll never forgive me for what I've done. So, It's really no use trying. Well, there's only one thing that you can do. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can heal your own heart. Allow God to heal your own heart. You can offer forgiveness. You can repent. You can change your way. And God is the one who ultimately has to heal that relationship. You can't heal the relationship. 
You can only allow God to heal your own heart. But that's the first step, allowing God to heal your own heart in hopes that that relationship can be reconciled. Forgiveness and repentance equals reconciliation. But where, where do we get the motivation to be reconciled with our brother or sister? I mean, because maybe somebody has done something so bad to us that we think to ourselves, maybe I don't want to be reconciled with them. I do not want to forgive them. Or maybe we're so angry at somebody that we don't want to repent. We don't want to ask for their forgiveness. So where do we get the motivation to be reconciled? Where do we get the motivation to forgive and to repent? And of course, I think we get that from the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Because if we're going to be reconciled with other people, we need to be first reconciled with God. As we look at this story and look at the different characters in the story, Joseph and Jacob and his brothers, I think if we had to identify with one set of characters in this story, I think the one that we would identify most with is the brothers. We're all like the brothers. We're guilty before the one who sits in the right hand of the Father, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We've broken God's laws. We've lifted our hands to violence, to quarrels, to deception creating false gods that we think will satisfy us. And we all deserve to be separated from God in the pit. But Jesus invites us to a meal. Just like Joseph invited to his brothers to a meal. Jesus invites us to a meal. He says, I know that you're guilty, but you can be forgiven. Jesus says, God sent me before you to save you, to rescue you. To redeem you. So Jesus says, go home. Tell your family. Tell your friends. Tell everybody that you know about this good news. So that they might come too and have a new land that I prepared for them. That they might spend forever with me. That's a hope of the gospel. It's a, and we see that picture of the gospel in this passage with Joseph and his brothers. And we get the motivation for reconciliation from the gospel that because we have been forgiven, we can forgive others. Because Christ has forgiven us of a great debt, we can forgive others of a smaller debt. We can repent because we see in the gospel that we, whether, a person, whether another person will forgive us or not, we've been forgiven by God. And that changes everything for us. The gospel is the motivation for reconciliation. Many of us have probably seen the movie Unbroken, which came out, I think, a couple years ago. Um, it's a story about Louis Zamperini, who was a World War II veteran whose plane was shot down in the Pacific in 1943. He spent a number of days on a raft in the middle of the ocean with sharks all around him. Then the Japanese uh, captured him, and they subjected him to... Uh, insane, intense torture for two and a half years before he was rescued. Now, the movie was a really good movie, uh, but I think that they get something wrong in the movie. Uh, the movie is called Unbroken, kind of, and I think the idea behind the movie is that his spirit could not be broken, that even throughout all this torture and all this, these bad circumstances, he still had hope and his spirit couldn't be broken. I think it gets it wrong a little bit. 
Because while he endured the torture, once he got back home, he was a very, very broken man. He suffered severely from PTSD. He became an alcoholic. His relationships were completely broken. He dreamed and fantasized about going back to Japan and exacting vengeance upon the people who had harmed him. It got so bad that one night he was having a dream about attacking one of the guards, only to wake up to find that he had his hands around his wife's neck. His wife couldn't take it anymore. She called for a divorce. But then shortly after that, she was invited to go to a Billy Graham crusade, the evangelist Billy Graham. And she went to the crusade and she ended up walking down the aisle and giving her life to Christ. She returned back home and she says, she tells Louis, I don't want a divorce anymore. And she's encouraging him to go hear this evangelist. She kept encouraging him to go, to go to this evangelist. But he refused. Finally, reluctantly, he gave in. First time he went, he heard the evangelist talk about the reality of sin and how we're all sinners and we're all broken before God. And he would have none of it. He went back kind of angry, I think, because he didn't believe that he was a sinner. He thought he was a good person. But just a few days later, God convicted his heart and he went back again. And he gave his life to Christ. Immediately, he was transformed. Immediately, his addiction to alcohol was removed. His relationship with his wife improved. And then sometime after that, he was able to go back to the prison where he was held as a captive, where he was tortured. And he was able to share the love of Christ, to share the gospel with those prisoners, or the, the prison, some of the prison guards who had tortured him to offer forgiveness to those people who had harmed him so much. It all started, though, with the gospel. It all started with experiencing the love of God. And from that, it gave him the motivation to be reconciled with people who didn't deserve his forgiveness, who did the most unthinkable things, but people whom God had died for, people who he had called to forgive. It all started with being reconciled to God. Forgiveness plus repentance equals reconciliation. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are our model, that you are our Savior, that in the gospel you've provided for us hope, that you provided for us a new future, that you've forgiven us from all of our sins. And you've brought us into the kingdom of your Son. That you've made us new people. That you've invited us to your table. And that you've invited us to spend forever with you. We thank you that the invitation is open to all who would turn to you in repentance. That your forgiveness and that your arms are open wide to us. God, we thank you for that acceptance that you've given us. God, I pray that We would follow your example and be people who forgive those who harm us, those who wrong us. God, I pray that we would be people who repent of our wrongdoing. God, I pray for anybody here who has been wronged and needs to offer forgiveness. God, I pray that you'd 
Give them strength to do that through the power of your Holy Spirit. God, I pray for anybody here who has wronged brother or sister, has done something that is not right. God, I pray that they would swallow their pride through your Holy Spirit, that they would turn and repent in order, that, in hopes that the relationship would be reconciled. God, I know that there's a lot of brokenness, and I know that we can't change another person, but through your power we can change our own hearts, that we can heal our own hearts. And God, we pray that you'd start there today, that you'd heal our hearts of any brokenness, any bitterness, any unforgiveness, any unrepentance that we may have. In Christ's name I pray, amen.